Hi there, and welcome to our Dairy Exporter podcast series on Fodder Beat. I'm Anne Lee, and in this podcast series, I'll be talking with Dr. Jim Gibbs from Lincoln University. This is our second episode on transitioning and part of our wider podcast series on Fodder Beat. If you'd like to listen to part one on transitioning, follow the link below. Stay listening if you're ready for part two. I asked Jim to walk us through a day in that first week as a bit of a recap and then to talk us through stepping them up in their allocation and why it's important to be very careful about doing that. Here's what he had to say. What we would normally do is to say, okay, if they're allocating at one kilo, so they're coming on to start with at one kilo, they might have come to the runoff and they would have been fed supplement and grass for a couple of days, so they've uh, adjusted from coming off the platform and they're ready to go, maybe even for a day or so. But when they come around to the beat, they shouldn't be fed the supplement before they go onto the beat that first day when you're allocating that dry matter behind a wire. Now, I'm aware that some people who are listening will have been doing that by time. You need to be, that's not a good way to do it anyway, but you need to be very careful if you are allocating around time. Hungry cattle in time will eat a lot more than what's likely you've been told. But for best practice when you're allocating that dry matter behind a wire, they can go on in the first few days when they're having one kilo allocated to them when they're hungry before they've been fed the supplement. And they can be left there for a couple of hours because some of them have to learn, I'm going to eat that beet. And even at one kilo, you'll often see, go back an hour or two later, you'll often see there's beet left around. So leaving them in a couple of hours is quite important. Then they come out and then they're fed that supplement. Now, that supplement has a room in residence time that's more than one day. So they're not ravenously hungry when they go in the next day. They've got, they've got uh, a, a partial room and fill for it that, that's adequate. But they haven't had that eating right prior to going on. And in the early days, that was a problem. People were doing that. They were, mm. uh, they were feeding them you know, the best they could, four kilos of grass silage or something, before yes. they put them on the crop. And yes. that doesn't encourage them to be hungry and to try it. Right. Well, that's but, interesting because I think that's uh, something possibly that has been a little bit poorly understood, mm. how important it is to, to get them all eating that and that you have to encourage that. From once you ha- are happy that they are mm. all eating it and you can then start moving up but every second day you are lifting it by a kilo mm. is that yep yeah. so um it's, it's really important that once you're putting them on one kilo that you go back or you stay there but but either way that you go back after about 20 minutes and look because uh, cattle like the leaf all of them like the leaf and they'll all line up on the line and they'll all go and eat the leaf and that's not what you're interested in mm. you have to be certain that they're eating the bowl now, bulbs vary in their palatability. Some are higher palatability and they'll eat them much quicker. Mm. Some are lower palatability. Mm. And that's not to do with their dry matter either. You hear that occasionally, it's not true. Some of the really high dry matter ones are particularly palatable. Sugar beet, for example, is particularly palatable. It, there's, there's other things that are involved in that, that that are understood relatively poorly. But if you go back and you see that they're all eating that one kilo, then you can begin moving them up. Why that's very important is if your management's been poor around your supplement, your paddock design, your timing, for example, a few things can go wrong, and you begin to lift that by a kilo every second day, and there's 25 or 30% of the cows that aren't eating it, mm. then there's another group over here who are eating double. Mm. Now, give them that seven days, they'll all be eating themselves into ruminacidosis. Yeah. So one, one 
um, very odd quirk of beat that appears to be completely unique, at least in, uh, in all of the literature we can find no precedent for, that cattle will achieve higher intake potential in their head than they will in their room. With, with many of the really high carbohydrate diets, for example, uh, feedlot diets with wheat, they can be brought to um, almost full diet adaptation in a period not much more than seven days. Uh, when that's done at industrial scale, that's very important. They want them growing as fast as they can. They don't want to spend time when they're dawdling and lagging. So there's been a tremendous amount of research over many years for that. That never happens with beet. Um, if people who've worked with beet for any period of time, the one thing that you'll note with them, um, particularly those people in beef who are getting live weight gains out of them and measuring that really carefully, that their full intakes take a much longer time to get to. In fact, the most recent research by our current PhD student here, Nadisha Jayasinghe, shows that that full intake potential might be 28 days. Now they're at most of their potential by about 14 days, but particularly the, those animals where we encourage absolute maximal intakes, beef finishing steers usually is where we're doing that to make more money out of them. It's a very long time before they get to full intakes. So the difficulty you have is that their head will tell them they're good at seven days and the rest of them isn't ready for a much longer period. And that's to do with the amount of water that they have to eat and the rest of the body adapting to that water, which they can't do. So they can eat themselves into a grave at that period quite readily. Therefore, you knowing that the, the bulk of that mob are all eating that one kilo before you move becomes more important. Yeah. It's an important point to note that your, your measure of success in that won't necessarily be that you don't have dead cows. Now, cows eat themselves on beet into a grave more than any other class of livestock. But if your management has been poor around that, and you've allowed a group of your mob not to be eating beet, and therefore you've allowed another group to be eating double over that period, sometimes what you'll do is you'll have a mild acidosis in those animals that isn't picked up clinically, so you won't necessarily see it. But what you do is you teach those animals not to eat fodder beef, and they're good learners. So if you burn them by doing that, you teach that group that have overeaten oh. not to eat a lot of fodder beef. Right. And for the rest of the winter when they're stuck in there, they'll eat as much supplement as they can, as much leaf as they can, and as little bulb as they can, because they've learned that lesson and they don't unlearn it for that season. Right, so, so the overeaters become the undereaters. And their body condition gains are often really poor. Wow. And then there's another bunch that never ate it much to begin with and their body condition gains are usually pretty poor. So, in fact, it's, it's understood quite well now because we have spent quite a few years in direct research on this. If people report their body condition gains are poor and we look at their diet, and in theory, it, it's about matching it, um, commonly we'll go and have a close look at the management. And in almost every case, it will have been a very poor transition. Mm. And these body condition gains subsequent to poor transition show in a herd on a different measure. Well, in a good, in a well-managed transition herd, what you'll see is a very consistent body condition gain across them with a tiny tail. Where you've had poorly managed herds, what you have is a, a very long tail of declining body condition gains across mm. this. So, that initial transition, getting off that one kilo, absolutely critical. Mm. How long could it take? In, in mixed-stage dairy cows that are well-managed, even if you've got an agronomically challenged crop that doesn't have a lot of leaf, a poorly palatable cultivar, 
you might expect if you're managing it well, it might take three days. Okay. It, it, in sort of R2 replacement heifers, sometimes it can take a week. Mm -hmm. um, in calves, uh, it will bankrupt you. In those cases, if they really don't like the cold, they just won't eat it. And, and that's a different story. Mm. But in mixed age dairy cows, uh, they'll always come to it. They're good eaters. They just have to be pushed onto it. And you'd not normally expect it to be more than a few days. Okay. And that's just an aside. It's not to say that calves shouldn't be on fodder bed? No, calves do very okay. well on fodder bed. Right. But you have to be more careful with the cultivar that you use right. and more careful about the management. They're much more sensitive in their eating. Right. Um, Okay, so then every a kilo every second day, if we're going to the um, type of feeding system that you advocate at the like full intakes, that that's going to be. It will be um, typically the biggest of the Holstein Frisians, um, big, big sort of bossy black and whites will eat about 12 kilos of dry yeah. matter of beet and no more. Right. And the Kiwi Cross will eat between 10 and 11 and no more. Right. So if that if you're starting at um, one kilo and you're moving up every second day, mm -hmm. then it'll take a little bit over 14 days before they get mm -hmm. about to the, mm -hmm. to the full end of that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know um, there seems to be a GST problem with most farmers that they tend to increase that a little faster than the maths say it should be. So in most cases, mm -hmm. by 14 days, they're pretty close to full intakes. Right. And, and that brings another point up that's um, an important concept to understand with transition. When people talk about transition, they're, they're often um, led to believe that the process of transition in the cow is the changing of the rumen microbes. Now, this very definitely is not true. You can change the rumen microbes in, on beet diets, in fact, on any of the high carbohydrate diets, you can change those rumen microbes very quickly. You can often change most of them within 72 hours. What the real transition with beet is in two completely separate places. The first one is that there's a change in their head around intake. So they get used to, um, on a per mouthful basis, they get used to dry matter intakes on a different feed number one, and number two, their intake, so the, the regulation around their intake is going up and up and up over that period, and that's between their ears. The second component, and a, a very important component to understand, is that like a lot of very low dry matter feeds, indeed can be 6-7% dry matter in certain cases, so it's very low, there's a tremendous amount of water to deal with, and that water has to be uh, very carefully processed by the rumen, and by the rest of the cow. So to achieve really high intakes on low dry matter feeds, there has to be a series of adaptations in the rumen. Now these aren't microbial adaptations. These are adaptations with the motility of the rumen. So they have to move this feed around differently with the blood flow to the lining of the rumen that takes away that water. And they have to be quite careful because when they take away water, they take away a lot of other things. So for example, all of the acids that are produced, all of the ammonia that's produced when they're eating protein or high protein feeds etc and then there's a system of, if you like a system physiology shift so some of these cows at full intake are dealing with two and three blood volumes a day worth of water so their urine uh, output is enormous mm. and unprecedented mm. now all of those changes are what really constitute transition it's not about changing the microbes in their gut that you can change very quickly so occasionally over the years uh, various uh, odd companies would approach me and say that they have 
a, a magic potion that you can pour in here that'll change the microbes very quick. And, and we, we try and patiently explain to them that actually it wouldn't help you, that, that the longer term adaptations to beat diets, and by longer term I mean the 14 days or 28 days mm. to absolute maximal intakes, are really about something else. They're not even particularly in the end about the sugar. Mm. They're really about the water flows and about the protein nutrition. So it is a tricky crop. No, not at all. I, 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 the way that we describe beet is that um, it has some pretty firm fixed rules. They're easy rules and there's not many of them. Yeah. And as long as you paint between the lines, beet's a safe crop. And the fact that its uptake went from 100 hectares to 70,000 hectares, a lot of that driven by dairy wintering, shows that people can do it and can do it really wow. easily. Mm. But there were a lot of learnings along the way that were really different from brassica crops and really different from other wintering approaches. Mm. And I think that's important and it's important to remember. Uh, it doesn't have the same flexibility for slack management that other crops do. Wow. So for example, with cow crops, you can chop them in and you can do an awful lot wrong and not have a problem. Of course, they have a whole series of other issues where cow deaths can be very high too, but, but in general terms, in, in the management of introductions, it's not such an issue. Mm. In beet, there's a very firm management. Mm. However, if you have normal paddock design and you get a good yield assessment, you have a standard allocation, none of, none of that's difficult. The uh, allocation from day one through 14 can be written on a piece of paper in terms of both supplement and beet, very straightforward to do. And once you're beyond that period of transition, so you've allowed those cows to eat up until they can't eat anymore, and that's the only time you should note when transition's finished. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I take them through that process and I stop them at eight kilos, they're not transitioned. Mm. Now, at some point that line will go down and they'll eat what they want to eat, which will be 12 kilos, and they'll lie down. Yeah. And that doesn't matter if I've had them there for three months. Mm. So they're not transitioned. They're only transitioned when they're eating as much as they can. Now, if you follow that process through, it's really straightforward. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a simple, straightforward process for farmers to use. Mm. The advantages of beet largely are around cost, that's yeah. true, and body condition gain. Mm. But in terms of management, um, the shift was people moving from a brassica management to a new crop. The people who've been doing it, and there's many farmers now who've been doing it for more than five years, they wouldn't report that it's difficult at all. In fact, I know some of the local farmers here in Lincoln that we worked with a lot over the years. Uh, one of the farms, David Irving, you and I did mm -hmm. some work on some years ago. Um, well, with their beet systems, they often put several thousand cows on, and I remember when we were gathering details off them a couple of years ago, once they really got um, their system up and humming, that they walked off six cows yeah. in, out of two and a half thousand. So I mean, zero deaths and, and really good results. So I, I don't think it's difficult at all. It's a, it's a straightforward crop to use, but there are some firm fixed rules. So that's all about transitioning the cows to fodder beet for wintering. But what if you're wanting to transition them to the crop while they're lactating, so transitioning them on the milking platform. There are some issues obviously about that in that those cows need to be well fed, so maybe some of those tools that Jim talked about uh, in terms of getting them to eat it and being hungry might be a bit of a problem. I talked to Jim about that too. Yep, you've hit the nail on the head with that, Anne. Um, the, the difficulty with lactation feeding is that you no longer have the stick, you've only got the carrot. 
And uh, in winter feeding, when you're putting them on to beet, in those first few days to encourage all of the mob onto eating beet, which we've discussed is a really important issue, what you can do is you can restrict the rest of their feed. Mm -hmm. So you, you can use hunger within the uh, diurnal period of the day as your tool to get them onto it. It's more difficult to do that in a lactation scenario. And what we would typically do in that scenario is similar in some ways to our wintering approach, but less aggressive. So we would pick a time of the day, typically before their fresh break or their silage or any other supplement that's going in has been given. So when the animals are in within that day period, when the animals are most hungry, and then you would expose them to that one kilogram of dry matter. Now on platform, sometimes that will be uh, grazed, and so it'll be behind a hot wire, just as we've discussed in wintering. Really important to note that that one linear meter becomes particularly important, and the fact that there's a headland um, that allows the lighter and younger animals to move mm -hmm. becomes really important because if you give them the opportunity to, in a lactating herd, they'll be, th with, with no difficulty at all, you'll have 30% who won't eat a mouthful. Mm. And if you're not careful with them, that will be structured into your feeding over the whole of the autumn. Because you have a short window to begin with, if you don't get them then, you won't get them. Mm. So you need to be more careful about those um, paddock design. The second component is, again, time. Um, it doesn't usually take very long to eat one kilogram of dry matter. So sometimes in uh, grazing on platform, people will run them on and off in a real short time, half an hour or so. Cattle adapt really quickly to that time and they know that. And so if I want them to eat it, I have to hold them there long enough that they realize I'm gonna be here, I might as well start eating. And so they're the two things that commonly go wrong. The other platform feeding uh, approach is to take uh, either harvested beet bulbs or beet bucket harvested bulb end leaf and put them through a silage wagon out on the pasture usually. That's a really effective way to do it, uh, no, no doubt about it. Um, How do you stop then the ones that not that keen and the other ones that want to have a gorge? If you start at one kilo, uh, even the ones that want to have a gorge haven't got that much that they can gorge on and it's right. not likely to be a problem. But what we do with the bulb or the bulb and the leaf going out through the wagon is we spread it out a lot. So we're, we're mimicking having lots of space. So often with other silages going out, they'll be put closer together and the cattle will be grazing closer together. Yes. The way that they eat beets differently and they won't do that. So you have to run the, the wagon faster and spread the beet over a larger area to do it. Right. And you um, also are using hunger within their daily cycle to your advantage. So you'd pick a time before they've gone onto the silage or before they've gone onto the fresh break because it's often in autumn. And the most important part with lactation is it'll typically take you a longer period of time than wintering to get all of the group onto eating it. Again, you have to watch carefully, they'll all eat the leaf. And that's a very common problem with people in autumn. They're looking in, they see that they're all eating, they don't think twice about it. And then they start increasing that allocation up. And there's gonna be a lot of leaf in autumn. You know, it's looking great at, around that time. 30, 35% is not uncommon in autumn crops yeah. because the bulb's still filling out. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's, it's, it's important to note, if people are feeding it out uh, on pasture particularly, that occasionally there's been um, some advice that's been given that there's a requirement for fibre in the room before they eat it. And even if they're eating one kilo or so, 
within their normal uh, lactation ration that they need to have some fibre immediately before eating all the hyperemic asparagus. Can I be really clear in saying that is completely wrong? Right. You will, if you're feeding out that silage or grass before feeding that beet, um, you will guarantee that there will be 25% of your mob that will not go near it. Mm. Um, you, you don't have that liberty. You have to be quite careful that you're not feeding out that fibre. Now, once they've eaten it, if it's part of your ration, you can feed it out. I'd say here, though, uh, note also it's not actually required. So if you're on a pasture-based ration and you're eating normal ryegrass mix, ryegrass clover pastures, you can feed up to five kilos of beets or a third or so of the autumn ration without the requirement to feed any additional fibre at all. So there's no requirement for you to feed silage or uh, straw or hay or anything else uh, from a rumen point of view. There's plenty of fibre in ryegrass. And that one kilogram is not a problem to begin with. Okay. And seeing they are lactating, is there a maximum? You can't, how far can you push them? Mm. Uh, yes, there is a maximum. So we, we said earlier that one of the um, characteristics of the beet bulb is it's relatively low in calcium and phosphorus. Now the leaf of beet plants is often high in calcium. So typically the calcium is adequate across the whole plant, but phosphorus mostly won't be. So a lot of people who are feeding harvested bulbs particularly need to be quite careful because they'll be feeding a lower component of phosphorus and calcium than the grass or the silage that they're also putting in with it. If, if they stay at a third of the diet, so four or five kilos of dry matter of beet, then um, typically phosphorus on platform pastures is quite high. People don't commonly measure that, but if you look at the herbage analysis for peat, a lot of people have uh, been angling for high olsen peats for a lot of years, so they typically have a lot of phosphorus in their grass. And they're, they're not going to be phosphorus deficient on a third of their ration. And there's no requirement for them to be building phosphorus into the cows. I hear this occasionally. Mm. Um, they're building it in autumn so they can not use it in winter. Phosphorus nutrition doesn't work like that. So as long as they stick to that third of the diet, then they don't have to add protein, they don't have to add fibre, and they don't have to add either calcium or phosphorus. Now, in Even certain, if it's just bulb only? Even if it's just bulb. Okay. If... Um, on occasion people have uh, odd diets like drought diets or for various reasons their diets where they're feeding um, a significant input from other supplements. One that comes across occasionally is maize silage. Mm -hmm. So maize silage will also be relatively low crude protein, has a lot of fibre in it but it has a relatively low crude protein and depending on how and where it was made it'll have a variable starch input. Um, you have to feed that a little more carefully because beet bulb, and sugar beet in particular, the bulb can have 6% crude protein. So if you're feeding that as a very high proportion of the diet along with something like maize silage, you can easily drop cattle down below that, that critical 15 or 17% crude protein in the diet. Similarly, if you're feeding quite a lot of beet bulb with some of the other feeds, you can run into trouble with calcium and phosphorus issues. You, you can get to the point where you're deficient in them, but not at a third of the diet. Okay, so I'm thinking about uh, guys in the North Island uh, where maize is grown and, and used as supplement through autumn and fodder beet is more commonly, more increasingly being used in autumn as well um, on the platform. What would be a good ration then if you're talking, you know, uh, once you you know a maximum I mean, in terms of fodder bit yeah. and those other things. So for for a fourteen or fifteen kilogram autumn um, ration, you know, running into dry off, if they're feeding maize, silage, and beet, 
it becomes more critical whether they're feeding beet bulb or whether they're feeding beet with leaf grazing or picking up in the bucket and putting it out because that leaf will carry another protein component which changes. If the leaf is on in autumn, uh, almost always in agronomically responsibly managed crops, that total crude protein of the plant will be about 13%, 12 or 13% in autumn with no difficulty at all. Without that leaf, it can be down to six and seven. So you, you do have to be quite careful with that. Uh, if they're mixing maize and beet, we typically say that neither of them should be over about four kilos. And if they are... Oh, each. Each, yes. Right. But then they have to pay a lot more attention to uh, what they're going to add to it. So, for example, in those cases, they will almost always require some sort of protein supplement. And that can be difficult and expensive. Mm. They'll often require some calcium and phosphorus input. DCP is a commonly fed one for that. Mm -hmm. What they won't require in those cases is a fibre input. Maize has plenty of fibre. Right. But, uh, yeah, so if you're getting up to eight kilos of alternatives in pastures down to, Mm. I don't know, six, then... You have some other um, inputs that are required. So... People have um, used, in those sorts of rations, have used different things. So uh, palm kernel has been used. Often Mm. that crude protein still isn't quite high enough, so it has to be some of the other protein meals Mm. that are put in. One thing they all have in common is they're very expensive. So you you need to look at your total ration and the cost of that pretty carefully because it can be um, the law of diminishing returns. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So care if you're getting up to that those higher levels. We think the most cost-effective use of beet is as a replacement for grass silage in that autumn period and using it in a normal pasture ration as a way of extending the round Mm -hmm. and putting up to a third. So in some cases people are on much higher intakes, but typically 14 to 15 kilo autumn ration, putting four or five kilos of beet in is a really cheap way to do it. Most people in the South Island for medium squares or rounds would cost silage out now at 35 cents a kilogram dry matter. If um, they were buying beet in directly, just harvested beet bowl, buying in directly, then most people could buy it now in the South Island for 25 cents. So even that would be a saving. Most people will grow it on platform for between 8 and 10 cents, mm-hmm. and it's about 5 cents a kilogram dry matter with the leaf losses taken into account. If you got commercial harvesting of the bulb, mm-hmm. and about one or two cents if you're using a beet bucket. So either way, those sums add up. Um, I don't think I don't I don't think grass silage has always been recognised for the expensive commodity that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's handy and it's safe and it has a lot of benefits, but it isn't cheap. So that's the end of our second episode on transitioning to fodder beet with Jim Gibbs. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more, go to our website nzfarmlife.co.nz and subscribe to our excellent monthly magazines.